What you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia, environmental radio show on Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP in Philadelphia, and on gtownradio.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Planet Philadelphia. I'm Kay Wood, the host. Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer reporter, is here with me. We're on a call with Zachary Barber from Penn Environment. Hi, Zach. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the EPA's proposed new standards for the national ambient air quality regarding soot pollution. But before we get into all that, would you please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you're doing this with Penn Environment? Yeah, uh, my name is Zach Barber. I'm the Clean Air Advocate with Penn Environment. I help uh, spearhead grassroots campaigns to tackle air pollution across Pennsylvania. And this work is really important to me personally because I remember being a young kid going to visit my grandmother and seeing right across from where she lived a giant facility I thought was a cloud factory with these big plumes spewing out the top. But sadly, it was a steel facility and that was unhealthy pollution. And when that facility closed, there was a 30% reduction in ER visits for things like asthma in the town surrounding the plant, like the one my grandmother lived in. And so that was an eye-opening experience for me that across Pennsylvania, we are exposed to dangerous pollution. And so I'm excited to get to work on campaigns to help clean up our air and ensure everyone can breathe without putting their health at risk. We're going to be talking about soot pollution. So could you tell people what that means? In the context of what we're talking about today, we're talking about a type of soot pollution uh, more formally known as fine particulate pollution, which is little particles of air pollution that are under 2.5 microns in size. And if you, like me, don't immediately have a visual image for what that is, it's about, you could fit about 10 of these particles around the width of a single human hair. So this is tiny microscopic pollution that is primarily released from burning of fossil fuels, whether it's in an industrial setting, at a power plant, out of the tailpipes of a car or a truck, uh, it's also released uh, in uh, wildfires, for example. And soot pollution itself is linked to all sorts of uh, health damage from uh, obvious respiratory damage to cardiovascular neurological problems and even premature death. And so this is a really harmful form of pollution that over the last few years, uh, science has increasingly shown that millions of Americans are exposed to regularly at dangerous levels. Mm-hmm. And what about people in Pennsylvania? Are are they just along with the average or are they struggling with more pollution than usual? Across Pennsylvania, we're unfortunately exposed to above average levels of soot pollution. Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and other parts of the state continually get failing grades from the American Lung Association on their state of the air report for soot pollution. And Penn Environment's trouble in the air report over the years has consistently found that Philadelphians and Pennsylvanians are exposed to high uh, unsafe levels of soot pollution around several times a month, if not more frequently. Has this kind of pollution been increasing recently or what has been happening over the last few years? 
Well, historically, the trend with soot pollution is similar to the overall trend on air pollution in the United States, where over the last few decades as a whole, we have seen a decrease in pollution. Uh, but unfortunately, in the last several years, uh, this progress has slowed or in some cases even turned around. And for example, based on data monitoring data from the Philadelphia Department of Public Health Air Management Services, soot pollution levels in Philadelphia actually increased in 2021 after being on a fairly steady decrease since about 2014. Why would that be, do you think? Yeah, this pollution comes from a number of sources, and so it's likely not one single reason, but a mix of things. Um, there was a dramatic decrease uh, in transportation at the start of the pandemic in 2020 as people were staying home. And what we saw was actually a big spike then in 2021, which uh, would have led to more emissions, more pollution. And then additionally, uh, there were uh, wildfires out west that uh, actually rained soot pollution across most of the continent. And there were also indications that in some places there was an uptick in industrial activity and industrial emissions, as well as decreasing uh, compliance by these industrial facilities. So it was probably a mix of these things. Certainly the wildfires probably played a role in that, but uh, other other factors as well. Yeah, and I would imagine that the soot pollution in the air is only made worse for people's health because it combines with other kinds of pollution in the air, noxious gases and things. Is that correct? Yeah. One of the things that is um, particularly harmful about this type of soot pollution, fine particulates, is that it has a uh, really deadly mixture of being very, very small and very, very sticky. It's carbon-based, and so other forms of pollution can actually attach itself to these little microscopic soot particles. And since it's then so small, the fine particulates can travel deep into your body. And so here in Pittsburgh, we have this image of our hell with the lid off days where the sky was covered in thick soot particles and your white shirt would be stained gray by lunchtime. And we don't really experience that extreme level of large soot pollution anymore in most places in the United States. But actually, as this pollution has gotten smaller, it goes deeper into our bodies. And so we're seeing not just the type of uh, asthma, cardiovascular problems, lung cancer, but even deeper full body impacts as it's taking heavy metals and other forms of harmful pollution and transporting them deeper into our bodies. I had heard that it actually can go through the blood brain barrier and then it may have an effect on mental health. Did I hear that right? Yeah, there are uh, emerging studies that are showing uh, that type of health impact and other previously unknown impacts of air pollution, including soot pollution on our health. And that's a really good example of why it is really important that we update our rules around soot pollution, because the existing federal rules, which sort of set the overall tone for air pollution regulation across the country, these rules haven't been updated since 2012 for soot pollution. And the, the type of research that you're talking about um, with some of the mental health and neurological impacts of air pollution, 
our scientific understanding has changed dramatically in just the last three years. And so you can imagine how much it's changed since 2012, last time we updated these soot standards. Mm -hmm. Well, this seems like a good segue into talking about what the new standards are that the EPA is proposing. At the beginning of this year, the EPA announced that they are planning to update uh, the federal air quality standards around uh, fine particulate soot pollution. And while they haven't, as of the time we're recording this, announced the exact level that they plan to propose, uh, they have said that they're planning to lower the standard um, from the current level of 12 micrograms per cubic liter down to about uh, somewhere between 9 and 10 micrograms per cubic meter. And so that represents, on the one hand, a pretty dramatic decrease uh, and would represent a serious step forward for clean air across the United States. This is some of the uh, most prevalent, most harmful forms of air pollution. And so lowering the standard like that would help protect people's health. But we also know um, it isn't as strong as it could be. The EPA's own science advisory panel advised them that there's sufficient health research to justify lowering the standard down to even eight micrograms per cubic meter. And subsequent health research has shown that if we go even as low as eight, we could save 200,000 additional lives in the United States per year versus the range that the EPA has proposed. And so what is going to be really important are going to be the really fine details here. These might sound like small numbers that are all close together, but what the research has shown is that even a small change in where this federal rule is set would have dramatic impacts on the health of Americans across the country. And since here in Pennsylvania, we're exposed to high levels of soot pollution, we will be one of the places that would stand to benefit the most from adopting the strongest possible standard here. It also occurs to me that if they adopt a new standard, um, it will also change the way industry works. I remember a while ago when they changed the standard for mercury pollution, a lot of coal plants went out of business because it was too expensive to continue on. So I'd like to get your thoughts about that. Yeah, one interesting thing is that the EPA's research has shown that since the Clean Air Act was first adopted back in the 70s, the advancing clean air regulations has actually spurred innovation in the uh, industry sector and has actually uh, led to, uh, in some cases, a net increase in jobs in the industry. What we know uh, is going to happen here is when the standard lowers in places where we do have high levels of pollution, our environmental watchdogs are going to have to uh, go back and look at the industry in the area and find ways to rein in this pollution. And what happens then will be we'll have to get creative and uh, find ways to lower pollution from these sources. But what we've seen is that it's definitely possible. We can start with the low-hanging fruit companies that are not using the best available pollution control technology, aren't obeying the existing laws, and bring them into compliance, bring them in line with the most cutting-edge pollution control technology, which often they need that little 
friendly nudge from regulators to, to actually pay to implement. It might be more expensive upfront, but it will save lives and is worth it. Uh, and so, you know, that's an example of how this type of rule can help kind of spur that action that we need to see. Yeah. So what other approaches might there be to help industry or all these sources, which one of them we didn't mention was incinerators and another was agriculture, I guess. What other approaches might there be to lowering the amount of soot? Yeah, for a problem as profound as air pollution and soot pollution in particular, there is no silver bullet. And so we absolutely need to start with the tools that are available to us uh, right now, like implementing the strongest possible soot rule. But we know that uh, if we really want to do the most to protect public health, we need a uh, kind of full court approach here. And as I mentioned before, a lot of the soot pollution in the United States comes from the burning of fossil fuels. And we now have the technology to start phasing out fossil fuels. We know we need to do this from a climate perspective. And that's often how we think about the need to ditch fossil fuels. Uh, the UN's top experts have consistently warned us that to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we need to transition to 100% renewable energy, and that will help uh, fend off the worst of climate change, but it will also cut off some of the major emission sources of uh, fine particulate soot pollution. And so whether it comes to you know, electrifying our transportation system, giving people uh, access to clean, flexible public transit that has been electrified, um, electrifying our cars. Uh, I know uh, one thing that uh, is on my mind right now as a recent homeowner is electrifying the appliances in my home. Uh, and then of course, replacing our coal power plants and our gas power plants with renewable sources like the wind and the sun, as we adopt renewable energy, we will also cut off some of the major emission sources of soot pollution, which will help us take this progress even further. Two for one, you know, in other words. Linda was talking about other approaches, and I do know some people have talked about things because it seems like companies pollute and pollute and pollute, and then they get fined, and the fines are compared to their bottom line, pretty minuscule, and it takes a long time. And some people have talked about going a criminal route. So the companies have to take it into their planning and not just assume that it's just the cost of doing business. Well, it's true. Here in Pennsylvania, we have countless examples of places where the regulatory process has failed us and where our environmental watchdogs aren't doing enough to actually make sure that it doesn't pay to pollute here in Pennsylvania. And so that's, you know, when you see things like companies getting small fines that are actually cheaper than the cost of fixing the problem. It is true that, you know, there are ways that we can expand how we think about the problem of air pollution and environmental pollution more generally to get more creative and holistic in our approach here. As we were talking about a moment ago, you don't experience air pollution one pollutant at a time or one source at a time. And yet our environmental regulations all regulate one pollutant at a time and one source at a time and one region at a time. And so there is really compelling 
uh, research and advocacy around this idea that we need a more holistic view of regulating industry and regulating pollution that actually matches the way that we experience it and the impacts that it actually has in our body. And so if we you know, imagine our ideal future where everybody can breathe clean air every single day of the year and they aren't being exposed to unhealthy air pollution, we're going to need to find more of these creative solutions like the ones that we've talked about. But we also know that we can't wait until we solve the whole big picture problem. And the fact remains that even with the laws we already have on the books and even with the tools already available to our regulators and environmental watchdogs, there is a lot more that we could be doing and that we should be doing. And so that starts with enforcement, like you, know, you were asking about here, making sure that when a company breaks the law and puts the public's health at risk, that they're facing a meaningful penalty and that we're requiring corrective action. We're not just giving them a slap on the wrist fine, but we're giving them a fine that outweighs the financial incentive to pollute and then forces them to go back and fix the underlying problem. Uh, and we also need to uh, strengthen our existing regulations and enforce the ones we have because all too often we're not even doing that. And so if we do want to tackle the problem of soot pollution or any other environmental problem, you know, I think it needs to be a mix of doing everything we can with what we already have, because there's a lot that we're leaving on the table that it, that is definitely doable right now and starting to talk to people long term about what does it mean to actually build a society that makes us happier and healthier instead of polluting our planet and making us sicker. Could you talk a little bit more about what is available now? For instance, I know Pennsylvania has something called the Green Amendment, but until recently, I think it's pretty much been ignored. Yeah, I, I mean, that is a great example. There is a constitutional amendment here in Pennsylvania ensuring our right to breathe clean air, to drink clean water, to enjoy this beautiful state that we're lucky to call home. And even more, this amendment says that it is our government's duty to be a steward of this, to protect our environment for all of us now and everyone who's to come. And uh, for a long time, that amendment was uh, sort of cast aside as, oh, a, a nice thought, but not something that actually had any legal weight. But in recent years, we've seen Pennsylvania courts start to point to this more and more and um, start to cite it in decisions and require that uh, our regulators at the Department of Environmental Protection and elsewhere actually live up to this wonderful ideal that we have in our constitution. Uh, so that's one example of a tool that is already available right now. But, you know, I also know that, you know, when it comes to the something as simple as giving the green light to new fossil fuel infrastructure, our regulators continue to rubber stamp industry's proposals to expand fracking, build more pipelines, even through you know, uh, sensitive water ecosystems. We just here uh, in the last uh, year or so in the Pittsburgh region, there's a, a proposal to build a gas power plant on the Yakagani River in one of the most polluted parts of the county at a time where climate change is becoming more and more visible. And our regulators aren't even using the tools at their disposal to rein in the expansion of fossil fuels at a time where we know we can't green light more. And so we need to see 
uh, our regulators start to actually uh, stand up to industry more and start to actually start from a place of what makes sense for the planet, what makes sense for the environment, what makes sense for our health, and then back into a place of how do we make our policy decisions based on that. But right now, all too often, our environmental watchdogs or the people who are supposed to be our environmental watchdogs are starting from the place of what makes sense for industry and then backing into what does that mean for our policy. And so we need to fundamentally reverse that paradigm to solve the problems that we face here. Well, as a former psychologist, often we have found that positive reinforcement, like incentives sometimes work better than punishment as in criminal law. So I know tax credits have been thought about as as incentives. There might be other ways that there could be incentives. Have you thought about that? Yeah, that's a great point. As much as possible, we want to use the carrot to make this as easy uh, a transition as it can be. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we were really excited uh, about the landmark climate legislation passed recently at the federal level, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which contained a lot of incentives to help people choose less polluting options, everything from uh, making it easier to switch to an electric vehicle to one I'm very much looking forward to uh, tapping into myself, replacing gas-powered stoves that are huge pollution sources and that uh, fuel our addiction to fossil fuels, replacing our gas stoves with induction cutting-edge stoves. And so by, uh, you know, making, by by using the carrot, like you're saying, the psychology, we can help uh, spur a shift towards cleaner pollution-free alternatives without having to rely on some of the negatives of the stick, you know, that will make it easier and a little smoother as, as we go to make that transition. Because for decades, our leaders have had their fingers on the scale in favor of fossil fuels. We continue to give billions of dollars to polluting industries. And so it's time that we take our finger off the scale in the side of the thing that's polluting our planet, fueling climate change, making us work, and then we have, we'll have so much available that we can use to create these type of incentive programs to help spur the things that will actually solve our problems and make us healthier and happier. That's a very interesting mentioning the gas stoves because and when we're talking about paradigm shifts, and I believe the, the national health agencies are considering a ban on gas stoves for health reasons. Have you heard about that? I've heard about this. Uh, there has been really alarming research that has come to light recently about the full impact of gas-powered stoves on our health. I know in the last week or two, I saw a study uh, that showed that um, gas stoves contribute to a, a very large percentage of childhood asthma cases. And you know, it makes sense that when we are burning a fossil fuel in our home, I know my kitchen doesn't have good ventilation, that we're then exposing ourselves to harmful pollution. And so after this research came out, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, one of the commissioners mentioned that they were going to explore all the options available to help protect people from gas stove pollution. And uh, this has a little bit been blown out of proportion as you know the feds are coming for your gas stoves. Uh, which has not 
actually been proposed at this time. But you know, this is an example of a place where we can use the power of public education and a positive incentive program to help make it easy for people to uh, transition off of gas stoves and onto cleaner uh, induction alternatives. You know, we're a capitalist society, and often when things change at a systems level, it's because of market forces. And it seems to me that that's another approach, how, how we can make market forces work to make these changes. What are your thoughts about that? I Go think ahead. it is both a powerful opportunity and uh, a little bit of a pitfall here. So in a capitalist society like the one we live in, absolutely the market has a huge impact on our daily lives and can be used to make huge change for the better or the worse. But you know what we see here in Pennsylvania time and again, and like we were just talking about, if the financial incentives on the market are in favor of polluting, of cutting corners, uh, then that is what will happen. And uh, as our government has put finger on the scale in favor of fossil fuels, you know, it, it has created market incentives that are actually counter to our health incentives. And so we should reverse that trend. And as you were suggesting, tap into the power of the market as one option for uh, moving forward environmental and clean air progress. And so, you know, that could mean a lot of things um, here in uh, Pennsylvania, for example, on the climate front, we are in the process of joining a multi-state climate pact that will use a market-based solution to reduce climate pollution from our power sector. And so that is one example of a way that we can use markets to drive down emissions without, you know, requiring anyone ch changing the thing that they're doing in their day-to-day -day personal lives. And there are totally other examples of this, as we've seen federal clean car standards nudge the car industry market towards cleaner, lower emitting vehicles. We've seen dramatic decreases in pollution from our transportation sector, and which has helped contribute to some of the cleaner air we've seen over the last several decades. And so we can use things like that to nudge the markets in cleaner, safer, more sustainable directions. But of course, these things all only work when we use them in conjunction with each other. And so we shouldn't just rely on the market, but we absolutely shouldn't forget about it either. You mentioned earlier that the regulators and legislators have the thumb on the scale in favor of the fossil fuel industry. And I'm wondering how can people change that paradigm? Yeah, uh, one of the really concerning truths about the way our state government works is that the fossil fuel industry has huge influence on the halls of power. In Harrisburg, there are fossil fuel lobbyists for every single member of the state legislature. We have more than 200 state lawmakers. That's a lot of power, a lot of influence. And in particular, the fossil fuel industries and the fracking companies have a lot of money that they're able to use to uh, buy influence with our elected officials. And so that has helped fuel this system where our lawmakers are hearing quite frequently from polluters uh, and have a lot of incentive to go along with what polluters are asking for. And we need to fundamentally change that dynamic so that 
our leaders are uh, hearing from the public about the things that will actually help make our lives better. And, you know, studies have shown over the last few years that something like two thirds of Pennsylvanians support stronger protections from fracking industry. And yet there has been no action uh, at the state level to move those things forward. And so what we need to do is we, we need to get in touch with our elected officials and we need to start organizing to show our elected officials uh, that you know these are things that we actually care about and to build power for our communities, for the environment, so that we can start to overcome that special interest influence from the fossil fuel industries and encourage our leaders, uh, demand our leaders make decisions that are actually in the public interest. That sounds like a fairly easy thing for someone to do, to simply write a letter to their legislator or make a phone call. That's what you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, you know, these are really great, uh, fairly easy starting points that actually can make a difference. I know every time there is a tough vote on one of these issues in Harrisburg, and we're calling and, and emailing and talking to constituents of some of the swing votes and having them call their legislator, write emails, send, send handwritten letters. And then we'll go back and talk to those lawmakers who actually changed their vote on it uh, from voting against the environment to voting the right way. And they will say, you know, I heard from my constituents, they made it very clear that uh, we need to do this. Unfortunately, there are many anti-environmental lawmakers in Harrisburg. We can't solve the problem just with a phone call, but it is a great starting point and it, uh, an example of how we can start building power to shift the overall incentive system and the, the whole system. This might be a good time for you to say how people can give input to the government on these new regulations about soot. Yeah, so the EPA is very soon going to start a public comment process for the national soot rule. And what will happen is they will accept uh, written comment over email and in the mail, and they will set up several virtual public hearings over uh, Zoom or another similar platform that uh, residents, members of the public, anyone can sign up for, and you'll get three minutes to testify and um, talk about why it is important to strengthen these rules and why it is important to adopt the strongest possible rule here. And we know that this type of advocacy makes a difference and we don't even have to look that far back. Right now, there's another public comment period underway for a similar rule about a type of climate pollution. And in the previous public comment period for this climate rule, the EPA proposal had huge loopholes that would have really, here in Pennsylvania left a lot of the missions uh, undealt with. And there was a huge outpouring of public input during this type of public comment period that said, hey, please close this loophole and deal with these emissions. And then the EPA went back and revised the proposal to close that loophole. And so we know that the EPA is listening and particularly in a state like Pennsylvania where we have such a problem with soot pollution and where we're a very politically important state, uh, our voices do matter on this. And if we speak up and show the EPA that you know, we wanna see the strongest possible rule and we're willing to stand up and speak out about it, we can actually help ensure that we get the strongest possible rule and save as many lives as possible. So how do you find out about the comment period and, and 
and where to sign up. Yeah, so the comment period uh, when it is announced will be, uh, all the details will be on the EPA website. It'll likely be in the news, but you know, it will be probably one of countless things. One way if people are interested that they can sign up to be able to find out when stuff like this happens, you can actually sign up for uh, Penn Environment's text alert program by texting clean air to uh, 484-229-0050 or watching the social media accounts of your favorite local environmental groups because we will all be talking about this. Uh, you know, it will happen uh, probably in the next few weeks here if it hasn't happened already. And so just keep an eye out um, for the news. And then uh, there will be, you know, opportunities to sign up on the EPA website to actually speak in one of the uh, public hearings or to submit written comment. Okay. We've covered a lot of ground. Are we missing anything that people should know about? One other angle on soot pollution that's worth thinking through is um, as climate change worsens, uh, our existing air pollution will worsen, particularly ozone, but also other forms of air pollution like soot pollution actually are worsened on hot days. We see more air pollution as it reacts in the atmosphere. And so as climate change worsens, the existing pollution in the air will become uh, more dangerous to our health. And so that adds added urgency to start ratcheting down this pollution now so that there's less of it and we can mitigate that long-term impact. Because as climate change worsens, so will our air pollution. And since these things are also interrelated and uh, the more pollution we're exposed to overall, the worse it becomes for our health, you know, there is, um, or a real urgency to tackle this now while we have a chance before climate change starts interfering. Yeah, one other thing that I thought about is, and this happens with greenhouse gases as well, there's a difference between stopping things at the source, just not burning fossil fuels versus removing them from the air later. And I, I think this would be the case with, with soot and what do you think about those two approaches? Well, yeah, uh, stopping something at the source is always more effective and more efficient than trying to clean it up later. With pollution that's this small, it's really hard for you and me as individuals to be able to take steps to protect ourselves on a high pollution day. We can wear a mask, but some of the most harmful pollution is probably small enough that it will get through the mask anyway. We can put filters on our homes, but we still know that what we breathe outside is working its way into our home and we're being exposed in there too. So there's, there's no great tool that we have as individuals for uh, filtering out this pollution or uh, cutting off our exposure to it. And so the, if we want to breathe cleaner air, the best way to do that is by stopping pollution from getting into the air in the first place. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Have a Thanks good weekend. A lot. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics 
and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you.